When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. From the 2nd to the 6th of September, 1666, the city of London was gutted by the Great Fire. More than 13,000 houses, 87 parish churches, and St. Paul's Cathedral were devastated by the blaze. Among the Londoners who witnessed the destruction, was the diarist Samuel Pepys. Having stayed and in an hour's time seen the fire rage every way and nobody to my sight endeavouring to quench it but to remove their goods and leave all to the fire and having seen it get as far as the steel yard and the wind mighty high and driving it into the city and everything after so long a drought proving combustible even the very stones of churches. So I was called for and did tell the King and Duke of York what I saw, and that unless His Majesty did command houses to be pulled down, nothing could stop the fire. They seemed much troubled, and the King commanded me to go to my Lord Mayor from him, and command him to spare no houses, but to pull down before the fire every way. The churches, houses, and all on fire and flaming at once, and a horrid noise the flames made, and the cracking of houses at their ruins. But how did the Great Fire of London start and spread so rapidly? Why did King Charles II intervene? And what took him so long? And what were the social and economic consequences of the fire? I'm Rob Weinberg, and to answer the big questions about this unforgettable event in the history of London, I'm joined by historian Ian Mortimer, author of The Time Traveller's Guide to Medieval England. This is How and Why History. Ian Mortimer, thank you very much for joining me. It's my great pleasure to be here. How did the Great Fire of London start? We'll never know exactly what spark set it off, but in the early hours of the 2nd of September, in a baker's house in Pudding Lane, it started, and the man in question, Thomas Farriner, woke up to find his house choked with smoke and led his children out along a ledge to try and escape it. Unfortunately, his maid didn't follow them, and she became the first victim. 
How did the weather conditions of the months leading up to the fire make the city particularly vulnerable? It had been an incredibly dry summer, very, very long, drought conditions even. So everything was waiting to basically go up in flames, as buildings often did in London. It's not rare for there to be fires in early modern London. What was London like? Did the makeshift and unplanned way the buildings were made add to the spread of the fire? Did the use of prohibited materials and the presence of illegal foundries and smithies also add to the problem? On the last point, that's not the danger in this case. Any sparks from an illegal foundry might have set off another fire some other time, but they didn't set off this one. And this was the big one, as it were. How did the fabric of London actually affect this? London is, as I describe it in the Time Traveller's Guide to Restoration Britain, it's practically a living museum because so much of it is medieval. So much of it is 16th century. Elizabethan London had seen this huge building boom and therefore an awful lot of wooden structures had been put together. And of course, they all cantilevered out onto the street to make the higher rooms more spacious. So therefore, not only are they crammed together, they're also very close on the other sides of the road. You can lean out in some streets and touch somebody's hand leaning out of the window on the other side of the road. And they're all old oak, really old oak in most cases. So it really is a fire trap. And how quickly did the fire spread? Pretty quickly. You can imagine it could have been worse, but if you think it started in the hours, early hours of the 2nd of September, by seven o'clock in the morning, it was being reported to Samuel Pepys, in fact, that 300 houses were already destroyed by then. Obviously, it went on to destroy 13,200 houses, but 300 had gone within the first few hours. And that would have been the slow part of the development of the fire. So you can say it's pretty fast spreading. Had the Great Plague already had quite an impact on the city by that point? In terms of the population, yes. I mean, the thing about early modern plagues is the bigger the city, the more dangerous they are as a proportion. So London, by far the biggest city in uh, Great Britain, therefore experienced a mortality level of 20% in the previous year. Officially, that's about 65,000 people in the bills of mortality died. But we know from statistical examination of excess mortality that it's more likely to be over 80,000 had died the previous year. So the fire spreads pretty rapidly. What kind of firefighting methods did they have in place? As I said earlier, they're really quite used to fires in London. So they have chains of people with buckets. And since there is so much water in the Thames, if you're near the Thames, and Pudding Lane was near the Thames, so it should have been possible to put out a fire using this method, you can have chains of buckets transferred to put out fires pretty rapidly. Obviously, the danger here is it happened in the middle of the night. People were asleep and it got hold before they could have this sort of chain reaction. People couldn't organise themselves quickly enough. The other forms of firefighting were hooks to pull down roofing materials and to pull down buildings where they could to create fire breaks. They had primitive fire engines in that these were effectively pumps that drew in water from wherever they could or had a small reservoir which could then be thrown as a jet into a building. The mid-17th century is very innovative in the way they look at pumping and they become very good at sending up high jets of water. The trouble is getting that water into the pump and enough manpower to get it there. And most of all, getting the pump to the fire itself, because you've got to send somebody to the captain of the fire engine to get it to the site. And that's going to require an awful lot of manpower. 
You mentioned fire breaks there where they would actually destroy buildings that were in the path of the fire to stop the fire spreading further. Why was this method of controlling the fire delayed in the case of the Great Fire until it was too late? On the whole, it wasn't always necessary to create fire breaks in the case of small fires. Pepys mentions 15 other fires in the 10 years of his diary. So that gives you an idea of how often they came to his attention. And they're probably more common than that. So on the whole, people could fight fires and wouldn't need to demolish property. When you had to demolish property, it was only undertaken with the greatest reservation because some poor fellow was going to have all his property knocked down, everything smashed up. You don't do that to people unless you really have to. And in order to realize you have to, things have almost got to get so bad. You've got to wait in some ways until it's too late before you realize what you've actually got to do. So it's not an efficient way of fighting a fire when everybody's so precious about what little they have in the world. You mentioned the narrowness of the streets. How did that and the conditions on the river itself exacerbate the situation? Well, on the river itself, it depends at what time in the fire, because you're thinking about something being such a conflagration for four days. So with regard to the river, yes, there was a lot of crowding on the river, but there's also lots, so much heat that many people who tried to get close from the river were beaten back by the simple heat of the river within the city itself. And remember, we're talking about the old city city constrained by the the medieval and Roman town walls, which you couldn't just jump over them. We're not talking about ruined walls here. We're talking about intact city preserving walls. So the narrowness of the street forces people to move in certain directions. It constrains them. Everything gets crowded. Some people try and rescue their possessions by putting them in their local parish church, believing that won't burn. Of course, once they put lots of combustible material in their local parish church, oh, yes, it will burn. Everything's going to burn. A modern estimates for how hot this fire got are in the region of 1700 degrees centigrade. So nothing was going to be saved. The narrow streets constrained everybody. But worst of all, when a cantilevered house collapses when it's burning, it splays outwards and all its burning material gets scattered over the street and over all the nearby houses. So these cantilevered out wooden houses, when they were burning, they not only risked everybody in the streets below, but the entire vicinity. Did London Bridge have a role to play in the spread of the fire? Well, In theory, because of the heat of this, and because, remember, it was so hot on the river, people were having difficulty getting to the shores in lighters to rescue people because of the heat. Now, because of that heat, in theory, London Bridge could have burnt entirely, but there had been an earlier fire, and that had left a big hole in London Bridge. And because no one had ever rebuilt those houses on London Bridge, more by luck than good judgment, London Bridge created its own fire break halfway along. So the river did act as a break on the fire and London Bridge wasn't breached, as it were. What means did people have then to escape? Well, if you were close to the river, you could perhaps take advantage of the lighters and the wherries. Remember, there are about 2,000 wherries on the river at this stage, and the wherrymen would have been helping, I'm sure, to help ferry people to safety, at a fee, of course. Carters would have come to the gates, but then they'd only ended up adding to the confusion. I don't imagine many people from outside the city got in to help others escape. So I think 
really, if you had any wheels within the city, you got on them and got out as quickly as possible with your cart and possessions. But most people are basically on foot and trying to flee with as many of their possessions and as much of their wealth as they possibly could. And only when desperation hit them did they abandon that wealth and those possessions. You mentioned the diary of Samuel Pepys, which Mm -hmm. covered periods of the Great Fire. There were also uh, diaries by the lesser-known John Evelyn. How important are those accounts by Pepys and Evelyn? Um, They are really fantastic literary achievements. When we think of a diary, we think in terms of us putting down our inmost thoughts. Now, the idea of an individual or a self putting himself so much at the center of his world that he's going to write about himself and everything going on around him is actually quite a novel thing. It really had only started in the late 16th century. And so by this stage, it's about 100 years old as a tradition, and it is just coming into its fruition. So these are the landmark literary achievements of the diarist's art. I then went towards Islington and Highgate, where one might have seen 200,000 people of all ranks and degrees, dispersed and laying along by their heaps of what they could save from the incendium, deploring their loss and though ready to perish for hunger and destitution, yet not asking one penny for relief, which to me appeared a stranger sight than any I had yet beheld. Having said that, there are some amateur, less educated writers who produce extraordinarily vivid accounts. And the schoolboy, 15-year-old schoolboy at Westminster School, William Taswell, his diary is also very vivid in what he saw. Soon after sunrising, I endeavoured to reach St Paul's. The ground was so hot as almost to scorch my shoes. And the air so intensely warm that unless I had stopped some time upon the fleet bridge to rest myself, I must have fainted. And now, I perceive the metal belonging to the bells melting, the ruinous conditions of the walls, whole heaps of stone of large circumference tumbling down with a great noise, ready to crush me to death. Near the east walls, a human body presented itself to me, parched up, as it were, with the flames, whole as to skin, meagre as to flesh, yellow as to colour. This was an old decrepit woman who fled here for safety, imagining the flames could not have reached her. Her clothes were burned, and every limb reduced to a coal. So I think because of the enormity of the event, everybody paid such detailed attention to it, we have some fantastic diary accounts. It appears that the Lord Mayor of London was pretty ineffectual, and King Charles II had to intervene. Why did the King intervene, and what took him so long? Well, what took the king so long was his initial reaction to Thomas Bloodworth, Mayor of London's reluctance to create firebreaks and reluctance to commit men was probably incredulity. I mean, he had a duty to do and a king thinks a man should do his job. I'm sure he thinks that way. And Thomas Bloodworth was 
initially scathing in that he didn't think the sire was that serious. And then when it did get that serious, it was in many ways too late for him with his resources to do much to fight it. And of course, there is this problem of does he as the Lord Mayor of London, want to pull down the houses of hundreds of citizens. What would that do to his reputation, he must be thinking? Because by the stage he realised that it was a serious problem, you weren't going to be able to pull down the houses. You would have to blow up entire neighbourhoods. That means carrying gunpowder around the city and setting explosive charges to blow up indiscriminately large parts of the city, including churches. Now, it's very easy for us to say, well, why didn't he do it? He surely saw there were 13,200 houses going to be destroyed or more. He could have rest. But of course, he couldn't see how bad it was going to get. And he couldn't see that that wind, that easterly wind, was going to carry on for two and a half days. I mean, when we have a strong wind, we don't normally imagine it's going to carry on for two and a half days. We imagine the wind will die down. It might rain, etc. So I think basically hoped for the best and did not plan for the worst is the explanation. And because this seemed like a dereliction of duty, Charles had to intervene. And of course, the Lord Mayor still didn't do anything. And it was only then when Charles II and his brother directly got involved that there was actual fighting of the fire. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Now, Londoners, as you said, had been ravaged by the plague. Now they were facing this terrible fire. It's inevitable, I guess, that order would have broken down. But why did people take out their anger on French and Dutch people living in London? Well, I mean, when you say order breaks down, there's lots of forms of order. And in one sense, order became even more important. But you're quite right. There is this idea of blame. Now, there's a sensitivity that uh, at this stage we were at war with the Dutch. And the previous month, in August 1666, Rear Admiral Robert Holmes had um, in many ways broken the rules of war. I mean, he had damaged a large number of Dutch ships and had burnt indiscriminately a non-strategic Dutch village, a West Schilling. Now, you have to sort of think that, from a Dutch point of view, it seemed that the English weren't just at war with them politically, they were at war with their very humanity. And from a Dutch point of view, you must think that this is an abomination. 
And from an English point of view, you must suspect that the Dutch would try and take revenge in some way or other. And some people did suspect the, the Dutch. And some people did suspect the French. A poor chap called Robert Hublot, a Frenchman, confessed to having started the fire in Westminster. He didn't even know where it started. He actually wasn't in England at the time that the fire started, but he was hanged as a result. There was anti-Fleming violence too. A lot of people saw this atrocity as either sent by God or a reason for them to carry out vengeance on their traditional enemy. When in the midst of all this calamity and confusion, there was, I know not how, an alarm begun, that the French and Dutch, with whom we were now in hostility, were not only landed, but even entering the city, there being in truth great suspicion some days before of those two nations joining, and even now that they had been the occasion of firing the town. This report did so terrify that on a sudden there was such an uproar and tumult that they ran from their goods, taking what weapons they could come at. They could not be stopped from falling on some of those nations whom they casually met, without sense or reason, the clamour and peril growing so excessive as made the whole court amazed at it. And they did with infinite pains and great difficulty reduce and appease the people, sending guards and troops of soldiers to cause them to retire into the fields again. Unfortunately, the way in which the English and even the Londoners, who are relatively tolerant of foreigners, live with foreign countries has always been a bit fractious. You mentioned that the carters and the boat owners had put their prices up. They benefited somewhat from the fire there. Yeah, they did, and so did anyone with spare accommodation. The number of people who were renting out rooms and paying top dollar for it went up. So there were people who financially benefited. There's also the question of if your premises, let's say you're a shopkeeper and your premises have just been burnt to the ground, obviously you are out of a job but you have a rent agreement with that landlord. And that landlord might well still insist on his rent, even though you can't make any money from that property. So you therefore have this problem. People carry on trying to extort money out of each other, even though the fire has destroyed all of their tenants wherewithal. But if that rent is your sole means of living, that is what you do. It's a terribly destructive thing and disruptive to the economic patterns of the city. Disruptive to... to the landmarks of the city. St Paul's is the most famous victim, I suppose. And if you'd seen St Paul's, you'd have seen the relatively modern West Front designed by Inigo Jones, all cracked. And you'd seen the bells actually melted. The bronze had melted. The roof lead had melted. The stonework was cracked. And Charles II, in the case of St Paul's, decided that was going to be a monument that had to be rebuilt. In other words, he was going to restore the medieval thing as a Pride of London symbol. And it wasn't until two years later when Christopher Wren was trying to effect some of this repair that the one side of it just gave way. And then Christopher Wren persuaded Charles II finally to allow it to be demolished. And most of the stonework went into filling in the River Fleet. But many other landmarks went as well. The Royal Exchange went, all those ancient livery halls went. London Stone itself, which was this legendary block supposed to be put there by King Lud, the first king of London, was reduced to like a small rock. It had previously stood tall as a monument, like an obelisk, and ended up being split and split and split and just is now a small rock on the side of a road somewhere. No one knows about London Stone these days. So yes, most of those great landmarks went. A few survived. The Guildhall's the most prominent survival. And of course, the Tower of London did not go up in smoke, which is a good thing.
If we think of London today, how far did the fire actually spread? Well, if you think in terms of the area enclosed by the walls of the city, so the Roman and medieval walls, it didn't quite reach the eastern wall and the northeastern edge there. So it got almost the tower, but as we've mentioned, it didn't get all the way to the tower. On the west side and on the northwest edges, it went right up to the town wall and over the fleet at the west side. So where it goes up Fleet Street, it jumped the fleet. Remember, easterly wind, the one thing that everybody thought wouldn't last that much longer, carried on and carried on and carried on. And because it was blowing the fire from the east, it just took it along Fleet Street and it jumped the River Fleet. And there was nothing the Duke of York's men could do to stop it. And they basically ran when that happened. So all of the wooden buildings on that part of Fleet Street were consumed as well. So the old city was 80 to 85% consumed and a large area between the old city and going up almost as far as, but not quite as far as Temple Bar, which is the traditional limits of the authority of the mayor of London. So we have four days of the fire being carried by heavy wind. How did it finally get put out? Well, you say four days. Yes, it definitely burnt for four days. But many people at the time would have said five, six, seven, because although William Taswell, this 15-year-old schoolboy, did get to the west side of St Paul's Cathedral on that fourth day, the ground was too hot for most people to walk on. His shoes were burning as he was walking through it. So was the fire out then? No, because there were smaller fires all over the place. The great raging inferno had come to an end, but there were fires that burnt on for quite some time afterwards. Now, in terms of visible fire, you're probably thinking in terms of pockets carrying on until the sixth or seventh day, but hidden in the basements because those houses had firewood brought in for winter. They had coal stored in their basement. Merchants by the river had oil and pitch and brandy and things like that stored in their warehouses. Now, in areas where there was not good oxygen supply, those smouldered for months. And in the case of coal cellars, those smouldered well into the following year. Every so often, air would get in and suddenly a fire would suddenly erupt out of nowhere, it seemed. It really died down with the lack of wind and it petered out and the smaller fires then could be dealt with. But on the whole, the inferno burnt itself out. And yet so few people died. What was the death toll and why were so few? Well, we don't know of many people who died, but we wouldn't, would we, considering 1700 degrees centigrade was the temperature. There was no roll call of everybody who had been there. Everybody had been dispersed on the way out of London as well, remember. So people were camping on the roads to Islington and to Highgate for the next three or four days, but then they had to find accommodation and they all went off in their separate ways. Now, we know of some victims, like Thomas Farriner's maid right at the start, and William Taswell found a carbonised body beside St Paul's Cathedral. But if you'd been in a building trapped, burning at 1700 degrees centigrade, they'd never have found a body. They'd never have really recognised the charred bones. Most people put the death toll at fewer than 10, but it could be more than that. And we would have no way of knowing because they had no way of knowing. There wouldn't have been a funeral. There wouldn't have been any sign. And in the confusion of what to do about the city afterwards, no one would have been going through all the dust and the rubble, sifting through for charred pieces of bone. So I don't think we can say how many died. I don't 
think it was very many because otherwise people would say, I lost so-and-so. That would be known. But for those people who are old, infirm, living by themselves, and when we say infirm, we are talking about a society in which there was a high prevalence of disease. I think there would have been victims who just were never known about. What were the social and economic consequences of the fire? Many and varied. One of the most interesting aspects of the fire is that despite great visions of how we could rebuild London with a new Renaissance layout and piazzas and long boulevard-like structures, both Christopher Wren and Pepys put forward their ideas for rebuilding London along these lines, people wouldn't give up their land. If you've had everything destroyed and all you have left is the site of the property you owned, you cling to that legal right, to that site of that property. And it would have been hugely disruptive to force people to give it up. So what you had instead was a standardized building program whereby there are four sorts of houses that can be built, their dimensions are set in law, and everybody has to build with conformity. Now this makes all of London fit a pattern that had been developing near Whitehall, near the Covent Garden end of London, where much more fireproof and sophisticated housing had been built. Houses built with brick and sometimes with stone, which did not lean out over the street, in which there were precautions taken against fire, much wider streets, cambered streets, drain streets. So all these sophistications were brought into the city, but the layout didn't change. Other social and economic changes were things like fire insurance came in. Now, that might seem a small thing, but that meant a fire insurance company who didn't want to have massive losses had to pay for a fire service. So you had professional fire brigades start up at this point. And most of all, and this is a subtle point that is frequently lost, but it's really important, is if previously you had thought the best safeguard against losing all your property was prayer, and that's what most people had thought, and then it's replaced by the calculation of a fire insurance premium, this changes your understanding of how the world is really working. And the later 17th century increasingly turns to quantification. It doesn't become less religious, it just looks to fellow human beings to safeguard them. In other words, there's less of a desperate hope in God that everything will be saved, and more of a reliance on fellow human beings, be they physicians or fire insurance salesmen, to safeguard your well-being into the future. We become much more monetarized and quantitative at this point. We've talked about the repercussions on the French and the Dutch living in London. What did neighbouring countries make of the fire? Well, if you were living in West Terschelling in Holland and your town had been burnt by uh, Robert Holmes, I'm sure your reaction would have been, well, God damn the English, it's what they deserved. And Holland had had, at this point, a particularly down period in the Second Dutch War. They eventually were victorious, but this was not a high point for them. So they must have seen a fair degree of divine providence behind it. And... Clearly, anybody who had anything to worry about from England at this particular point in time, including the French, would have seen this disaster as being politically beneficial, if not the result of divine providence, simply because it meant the English are going to be sorting out their troubles at home for a little while yet. So I think foreigners would have thought it was bad luck on the English, bad luck on their compatriots who were living in London, and a large number of foreigners were living in London, but on the whole, it kept the English contained at a period when they had great expansionist ambitions. 
Finally, we're talking about less than a week probably in the history of Britain. Why do you think the Great Fire of London has stayed so strongly in people's minds as a sort of seminal event in our history? Uh, that's a good question. There is the atrocity factor. I can remember when the Grenfell Tower disaster came along. I just thought it hit an archetype that everybody would recognise and everybody would be shocked by profoundly, no matter who they were. And I think Great Fire has that archetypal shock value that you just can't get your head around flames that leap hundreds of feet into the air temperatures of 1700 degrees centigrade and you're trapped there within the walls in a burning town falling down around you so there's that there's also the great character that comes out of the writing in terms of our history we have objective views of earlier generations we got wonderful sources for medieval and early modern history and 16th century history but it's really only at the end of the 16th century and the early 17th century you start to get very good subjective writing meaningful expositions of what it means to be alive in all the things that humanity has to suffer i'm thinking very much along shakespearean lines here and when you get to samuel pepys and you have this fantastic evocation of individualism in this diary almost like an overflowing of personality we relate to that too so when that personality is able to talk about his experiences with such a vivid way and saw such extraordinary things as the plague and the great fire and was so much at the heart of royalty as well we have a special fondness for 1660s i think sometimes it's slightly disappointing that we are so wrapped up in the 1660s we forget that the 17th century had the the 1670s and 1680s and 16 i mean it's almost like we don't get interested again until the industrial revolution the 1660s dominates our attention to that extent so i think that that is a core part of it it's the humanity in the writing and the sources the archetypal shock of the event itself and us thinking what would we have experienced had we been there how much would it have affected us ian mortimer thank you very much for it's joining. been my pleasure thank you very much how and why history Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.